This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13, looking at verses 22 through 30. So Luke 13, 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and taught, and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, this account is humbling to those who have ears to hear. Father, I pray that you would grant those ears to everyone in this room. Uh, Father, I pray that we would approach your word willing to be humbled underneath it. God, I pray that uh, the realities in this text, the striving in this text would be true in all of our lives. Uh, Father, I know in a room this size, there's sheep and there's goats. So God, I pray that you would work a mighty work for your glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you had a chance to walk with Christ from one village to another and have his ear, I wonder what question you might ask him. I'm sure if all of us had that opportunity as the followers of Christ had, we would have more than one question that we would want to ask You give me 10 minutes, I could come up with a list that I would love to bring him and get an answer to. And my guess is with every question, the answer I would get from him would be somewhat unique. 
and surprising because God not only knows how to answer questions, Christ not only knows how to answer questions, but he knows who's asking them. He knows why they're asking the question. And therefore, his response often, as we read the gospel, seems unique. It's like, come on, Jesus, just answer the question. Yes or no. Are a lot going to be saved or only a few going to be saved? And we get to join this gentleman on this road walking with Christ. We get to listen to his question. We get to see Christ's answer. Uh, this is going to be a two-part series. Uh, we're going to, if you look at your notes, uh, when I look at this text, I see a question. I see a plea, and then I see three voyages into the future. This morning we're going to take a question and a plea, and next week we're going to look ahead. Let me just show you uh, a little bit of this outline just looking at the text. Here's the question. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. He's within a few months before his death at this point. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? There's the question. And Christ responds to them with a plea. Or some might say a command. I went back and forth, but a plea. Strive to enter through the narrow door and then Jesus begins to answer the above question in an odd way in a way we might not expect by bringing us into the future to see how things will be at judgment day look at what he says at the End of verse 24. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. We get to come forward and see many seeking to answer, enter who will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. It's a glimpse of what judgment day will look like. And then we voyage into the future and see a glimpse of those in hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south 
and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And then the final voyage we'll look at is the voyage into the future to see the surprising reversal because Jesus says, and behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Today we'll take a question and a plea. Let's look at the question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Where does this question come from? Why is this man asking this question? In order to understand that, we need to understand what it would have been like to be a Jew in Jesus' day and experience the ministry of Christ. The Jews believed the law of God and then the also the tradition of the elders. Man-made traditions put later in what we call the Talmud. And in the Talmud, we get a little glimpse of the thinking of the Jewish mind. In the Sanhedrin, chapter 10, verse 1, here's what it says. All Israelites will have a share in the world to come. All Israelites will have a share in the world to come. The idea that all Israelites are going to partake in the kingdom of God. But here's the problem. They've been listening to Jesus and looking at their religious leaders and their religious leaders are shaking their heads going, this is bad. This is bad. Come talk to me when he's done. We'll tell you how to process this. What he's doing, he's doing by the power of Satan himself. All those miracles, yes, they're true miracles. Yes, he's really doing them, but Satan is empowering him. And so if you're the average Jew, you're looking at them and listening, but then you're listening to what Jesus is saying, and Jesus is saying that they are not going to enter in to the kingdom of heaven. And the Jewish mind's going, the Pharisees, the ones who are set apart, the super religious, the ones who know their Old Testament inside and out are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so a follower of Christ that seems to be leaning into what Jesus is saying is starting to do math in his mind as he looks at the world of Gentiles out there that know nothing of God. And as he looks at the religious leaders who are in conflict with Christ, 
And he asked this question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? In Matthew 15, just to better build out how big a conflict this was, how, how different Christ and the Pharisees were, in Matthew 15.1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition, the tradition of the elders? It's like a given. You have to follow the tradition of the elders. This is on par with Scripture itself to them. It's not a weird question for them to ask Him. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And He said to them, And why do you... Interesting way Jesus responds to a question with a question. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? (laughs) So if you're a bystander listening to this, you're seeing, boom, you're seeing the collision between the two. And then in verse 6 of Matthew 15, for the sake of your tradition, Jesus says, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're putting their traditions on par with Scripture. And this man is putting things together asking a question, leaning in to a response, but you can almost hear surprise a little bit like, this is shocking to me. So are you saying only a few will be saved? I remember this in my own personal testimony. I remember being a youth pastor about 10 years ago, believing all 30 kids in my youth group were born again, believing all of them were Christians, because if I asked them whether or not they were saved, they would say yes. And if I asked them, are you trusting in Christ for forgiveness for your sins, they would say yes. Have you prayed the prayer to receive Christ into your heart? They said yes. And then I begin to learn about what the Bible teaches about the new birth and about conversion and about assurance of salvation. And I begin to realize if I take the Scripture serious, what Jesus says about salvation, what the Scriptures say about salvation, we would be doing good. I remember having these conversations with Laura. If half of our youth group was truly born again. And then I just started thinking of everyone I loved. And my question 
could have been the exact same question if I could have run into Jesus in that moment. So are you saying that only a few are going to be saved? If there was surprise in this question, the surprise would prove to be a lack of understanding the Old Testament scriptures. Because in Genesis 6, 13, we read this. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and without with pitch. And then if we were going to skip ahead a little bit and go to chapter 7, verse 23, we read, He, being God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and the birds and birds of the heavens, and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Eight individuals were saved. And the entire human race was destroyed. And God is God. The God that Noah knew is our God. If you were going to look into the Old Testament and say, this is shocking that maybe only a few will be saved, you won't find support for that in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, both cities were destroyed and only Lot and his wife and daughters escaped. If you look at the remnant of Israel, it was always incredibly small, those who were truly believers. Jesus, as He looks at His disciples, what does He call them? He calls them little flock. Incredible crowds Jesus drew. But with merely teaching that in order to follow Him, they would have to immerse themselves fully into Himself and deny themselves, all the crowds leave. As He says, you must drink My blood and eat My flesh, saying, unless you come into me and I into you fully. You can't follow me. And they all left. And he looks at his disciples. He says, are you going too? And Peter says, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? But if you were going to look to the Scripture and you thought the majority is going to enter the kingdom of God, you would not get that idea 
from the Scripture. And so the question is asked to him. I want to share one more text that has always been one of the saddest texts in the New Testament, I think. Luke 18, starting in verse 7. He says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? What do you mean? Will he find faith on the earth? As Jesus looks at the rebellion and he looks at the world, he says, when Christ returns, will there be faith? Surely the elect will be saved. Yes, they will be saved, but even they would turn away if he did not keep them. Sometimes we ask questions like this because it's entertainment. We gather together with uh, Christians who know the Bible, and we like to ask provocative questions and debate debate what one another thinks about it. But whenever Jesus sensed that, if he sensed that, he would never seem to satisfy the question as means of this is interesting, this is entertainment. But rather, he would strike right at the individual soul what really matters. And that's what Jesus does here. Here's what he says. Here's how he responds to that question. Here's the plea. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. How many of you just now sensed a little bit of uncomfortable feeling with the word strive. Because in your mind you say, wait a minute, we're saved by grace. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus says strive to enter through the narrow door. If you were honest, were you thinking that question? Would you be afraid to ask one of your friends or family members to strive to enter through the narrow door? To use that sort of language? So let's take care of that question right off the bat as we drive into this text deeper. All right? The grounds of our salvation is Christ's 
righteousness alone. All right? I struggled through this for so long trying to get clarity on this. The grounds of your salvation is Christ's righteousness alone. What do I mean by that? When God invites you, if God invites you into His kingdom, it'll only be because the grounds of your salvation was Jesus' perfect work done on your behalf. God will never look at some good deed you did or church uh, attendance or baptism or anything and say, because of that thing, I'm going to ground your salvation in that effort. That'll never happen. The ground... The grounds of our salvation will only ever be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The problem we all have before God is we are not righteous, but we are sinful. And what we need to enter into a relationship with God and enter His kingdom is perfect righteousness. And God will never find that inside of you or inside of me. All right? The grounds of our righteousness is Christ. Why then strive? <laughs> Why does he say strive to enter through the narrow door? Salvation is not merely a judicial declaration of not guilty in the heavenly courtroom of God. Although it is that. When you trust Christ before the law books of God, you are found not guilty on the basis of Christ's righteousness in your place and the fact that your sins have been taken care of that is true but salvation is not merely that salvation is also a supernatural work of god whereby the holy spirit births out a new man that's spiritually alive with new affections for God. A man with spiritual life and the Holy Spirit dwelling within. This man is a new creation. A born-again man whose change will be evident by his good works. So, your salvation is more than God just saying, when you get here, you're going to be found not guilty. It's a supernatural work where God changes your affections, where God makes a spiritually dead person alive. And it's a new birth with a new child that is a new child. Supernatural salvation works. It works. 
The works then are never a reason God saves them, but the evidence that he has saved them. The new child of God begins to look like his father and love what his father loves and hate what his father hates. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 2.8. We get to see this all connected in three verses. And, and it's crystal clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And in the original Greek construction of this sentence, the this, where it says, and this, attaches both to grace and faith. God is also the author of our faith. He is the one who turns the lights on. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right? So salvation is not a result of works, but it's a result of grace through faith, and all that's from God. But read on. For we are His workmanship. You think the Grand Canyon is amazing? You think standing at the foot of the ocean when the sun's going down is amazing? It is, and it shows His glory. But Paul is talking to born-again Christians and he says, you are His workmanship. God is doing something. Created in Christ Jesus for good works in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He created us. He gave us new birth. I always tell those that I get a privilege of sitting down with uh, in, in counseling to be able to say you can look incredibly different in just very short time. I've seen it in weeks when a person attaches their faith to God's Word. A selfish person that's all about themselves, that's all about their own desires, their own plan, their, can begin to become a loving person that counts other people's lives as more important than themselves. It's incredible. It's more amazing than any sunset. We're created in Christ Jesus. Paul Washer says, there's no believer who loves God as he ought or who desires God's law as is appropriate. However, those who've been regenerated by God's Spirit will have a marked difference in their estimation and application 
of the word in comparison to those who are yet unconverted. If you're sitting here saying, well, I don't love God enough, I say, well, join the party. Neither do I. But do you love him? A non-believer doesn't love him. Do you want his word? When you hear his word, is it like life to you? Do you say, I need this. Why do I go so long without this? When you gather with God's people and experience the encouragement of the Spirit of God and the people of God through the Word of God, do you say in your mind, you know what? I can't go so long isolating away from this. That's weird in the eyes of the world. Only believers have affections for God like that. Martin Luther says very succinctly what I took 30 minutes to say, I guess. Martin Luther says, our good works do not generate righteousness. Rather, our righteousness in Christ generates good works. All right, get out your pen if you have one. I'll say it again because it's good. Our good works do not generate righteousness. That's every other religion in the face of the earth believes that. Rather, our righteousness in Christ that was given to us as a gift, our righteousness in Christ generates good works. So I say all that to just calm your soul if you begin to struggle when you see the word strive to enter through the narrow door. Because what I just told you is true and biblical. And if it's not, come rebuke me and I'll try to clear it up next Sunday. So what does Jesus mean when he says strive? The Greek word is a, a fun one to say. Agonizomai. What English word do we get from that? Agonize. Agonize to enter through the narrow door. The word means to provide violent force to provide violent force. We were just at a conference with a bunch of supposedly born-again Christians where you had to wait at the door to enter the, the <laughs> um, whatever it was, big ballroom where the 5,000 chairs were. You were taking your life in your own hands if you wanted to get up towards the front because people were violently pushing forward to enter and to get a seat. It kind of illustrates the word. Jesus says, violently agonize to enter through the narrow door. Now think of this. The Pharisees spent their time scheming against Christ while others, mainly Gentiles, ran to Him with such zeal 
that they're pictured as almost like a violent crowd trying to get to him, trying to hear the words of life. So different. Jesus is here, the Pharisees are here, and they're scheming. Ah, man, he always makes us look bad. He says we have bad hearts. He's revealing the pride that I've been hiding for from everyone for 10 years, and now he just says it out in public. And yet others are pressing in to him, running to him, as though life is found in him. They were seeking him with all their hearts. Like Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek with all your heart. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek after me diligently find me. To strive to enter means, I think in this context of the passage of chapter 13, to repent and trust Christ. To repent before judgment day comes. So in order to understand the word strive, we need to understand the word repent. If we're going to look at this in the context, back in Luke chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way, because they were killed by Pilate? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he repeats it again in verse 5. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You're living on borrowed time. And if you're living on borrowed time, and you must enter through the narrow door, then repent. Turn from your sins and run to Christ. I was trying to think how to illustrate this. There's these movies like Castaway where a man's plane goes down and he ends up for years on a deserted island. Years and years and years. And he's hoping and he's praying that a plane will fly over or a ship will go by. And at, at one time he sees a ship way out in the distance and he gets out on his raft and he about kills himself trying to get out there. That's the picture. Run to Christ. It's your only chance. He's your only hope. Agonize to get to Him. The Word is a hard word, but it's not unlike Jesus' teaching elsewhere in Matthew 7. Verse 13, in a very similar type teaching, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those going to hell are on easy street 
and they're with the crowd. You see, if you're trying to figure out if Christianity is true or not by seeing how many people are buying into it, you're a fool. Because Scripture never gives us the idea that that's where our confidence is in our faith. But it's easy. But what does he say then? He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. It's hard. Well, it's hard because the the door is so narrow. In fact, in order to get through the narrow door, imagine a door so narrow that the only way you can fit through it is by taking off everything. Any ounce of clothing hangs you up in the door so that you can only squeeze through it naked. That's why it's hard. Because almost everybody wants to go to that door with something in their hands for a reason why God should save them. And whatever you hang on to will keep you from entering in. You must realize, like the song, nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. It's hard because in our pride and in our flesh, we like to think some part of it has to do with my goodness. At least 1% of my salvation has to be grounded in my good works. Too much. Christ came for sinners. Those who have let the Word of God expose them to the point where they realize they're naked and exposed, and have no hope of entering, but by Christ, but by a Savior. That's why I say a true Christian church has very few successful businessmen. Because to be truly saved means you have to be truly humbled down to the point where you admit you have no righteousness. You are not a great man. You are a sinner in need of Christ. That's why Jesus said it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because what comes with being rich is a whole lot of self-confidence a lot of times. A lot of people look at their wealth as, boy, God bless me, I must really be holy because look at all my success. But it's hard because the road, the the door is narrow. We've already seen this in Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. (laughs) Strive? Do I have to keep earning my salvation? No. But you want to know what supernatural faith does? It perseveres. To the end, 
It's not a perfect faith because we still have sin in our bodies, but it's a persevering faith that continues to battle against their sin. And if following Christ, the prerequisite is denying yourself, well, then it's going to be an agonizing battle as you seek to put to death the selfishness in your own heart by the power of the Spirit. And you don't put it to death to earn your salvation, but you only have the ability to begin to put it to death death because of the new birth that's given to us by God. It's hard for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's hard when I'm a, when my heart is not good and I don't speak to my wife kindly. I don't get to just go on with my week and write another sermon. It's hard. I need to go apologize. And that's hard to do. But what's the other option? What's the other option? Go do this thing by myself, in my own strength, in my own pride, justifying my life to myself, fooling myself. The Christian life is a life of being humbled, being put to death, being needing to repent over and over and over again. And that might sound depressing to you, but here's the good news. The more you repent, the more you see yourself as you truly are. And the more you see yourself as you truly are, the more glorious your Savior looks. Because He really is your only hope. And He really is your only strength. And I cut this sermon in half, thinking we were good. And now... I should have cut it in force, it looks like. To strive to enter in this context means to repent and turn to Christ. And next week, we're going to unpack repentance so we understand what it means to turn from sin and to find life in sin and Turn to Christ. Father, I thank you so much that our salvation has nothing to do with some goodness inside of me. And Father, I thank you so much that goodness can come out of me because your spirit was put into me. And Father, I pray that there would be no one here fooled like the crowds were. As we'll see in the next couple weeks in this text, that the crowds all thought they're getting in the door. 
and they were all religious and they all knew their Bibles. And they all could point to all sorts of reasons why they're better than other people. And yet, the glimpse you give us into the future, Lord, is that they stand outside the door. And the fact that although they thought they were going to heaven and end up in hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth is what they're left with. Father, I pray that you would humble every soul in here. That every soul would let down their argument, their self-justification. That every soul in here would say, Lord, expose me for who I truly am. And let me cling to you. Father, give me that new life that only you can do. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.